those candles are all lighted. Season's about over. And we look forward to a new year. I want to say thank you to everyone who uh, got here anyway. Brother Alan, Mr. John, glad you're here. I thank everyone who went Christmas caroling with us last year, or last week. Uh, yeah, last year, too. But now, two years ago, no, because we had an ice storm. I don't know about you, but Christmas caroling is always a special thing for me. I haven't missed going Christmas caroling since 1958, except two years ago when we had an ice storm. And uh, when I was younger, some of us would go Christmas caroling with our band instruments. Eugene Lawson playing the sousaphone and... Uh, Robert Edge and I playing clarinet and Paul Wood playing trumpet and Marlon Schmidt trombone. That was fun, going door to door and caroling on band instruments. We always caroled at Bel Air Christian Church, and in the 70s, Jesus Inn joined us, and we used to carol together. And then when we came here, that tradition was brought here. But what a wonderful thing to be able to go door to door, bless people with the gospel message in those carols, and, of course, giving a ham. Wasn't that fun? And we thank God for good weather. <laughs> well, today we're really in a rather strange period that some people call between the times. Christmas is over. New Year's isn't quite here yet. In recent years, it's been my custom in this between the times period to spend some extensive time in prayer before God seeking guidance for the coming year, sometimes seeking to hear from God concerning something about my own life. In the years when my hand was more or less on the tiller at TCF, the week before New Year's, you'd find me on my face right over there beside where the piano is, praying for guidance from God for the coming year. Sometimes I'd be up on the stage, flat on my back, staring at the ceiling. And during those years, I began to recognize when the voice of God was really being spoken to me. We're all different. We're all unique. But for me, when God was truly speaking, it was so quiet and so unobtrusive that I could miss it easier than notice it. But I came to recognize that voice. And time and time again, over those years, the Lord would show me what was going to happen in the next 12 months. And when it happened, I was never disturbed even if it was trouble because the Lord had spoken to me in advance that it was going to happen. A dozen or so years ago, as I was praying between the times, God said this to me, and let me read it. First is a call to reality in your preaching. Determine to speak from the pulpit only that which has become reality to you. Thus, if you're not experiencing a truth to some degree, do not speak about that truth. Ideas, theories, concepts must be avoided unless they have become convictions. This does not mean that you should present only those principles, values, and ideas that you have only fully realized, because as a representative of God, 
You will always declare a life that is holier, greater, and filled with more love than you will ever be able to display. However, the tenor of your life must be in harmony with the truths that you present, always striving through the inner working of the Holy Spirit to conform to the character of God. Sometimes when teaching, that isn't important. But I've sought to abide by that word from God every time I've been in the pulpit. And because of that, what you've heard from me in the recent years often has been more testimony than preaching (laughs) because I don't know any other way to be faithful to that word. And so it will be this morning. Recent years, it's been my custom to leave my house 5.15 or a little before, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday, to meet with someone at a rendezvous to spend time with them before they go to work. Tuesday, of course, elders meeting. Bill and I get here about 5.30 to get everything set up. Fridays, I've tried to keep free that I might have a morning just me and God and Of course, Sundays, you're praying about the morning service. But since the middle of August, that routine has been interrupted. As you know, Mark was injured in a motorcycle accident. And then for some time, week after week after week, it was important for me every morning at around 6.30 to 6.45, start getting him ready for bariatric treatment. And so I've been at home. But I've risen every morning two hours before time to get Mark ready. And I would never thank God that Mark was injured, but I thank God for the blessing these many, many weeks, two hours in the dark, absolute silence before God. I wake up, fill my cup of coffee, come back to my bedroom, and in darkness, No music, nothing, absolute silence before the Lord. And there's been one consistent prayer. Oh God, be real to me. Be real to me. Let me know you. And I must say, over the weeks, he said yes. The reality of God is greater in my life today than it has ever been. And when I pray that prayer, I sit silently and listen. I've tried to present my life to God as a chalkboard completely washed clean with nothing on it and hand to him the chalk and say, Right, right, and he has done so. He has consistently made me aware of my flaws, inner attitudes that aren't right, things that needed to be changed, things that I don't have the power to change, but by his Holy Spirit, the power's there. And he has consistently been faithful to respond to my plea. This past week, as I prayed to the Lord about this morning, 
it seemed clear that I should talk about this realm, the realm of knowing God. And when I began to think about that theme of knowing God, of course, immediately leapt to mind that chapter that so many of you have memorized, Philippians chapter 3, and especially verses 8 and 10. More than that, and notice what Paul says, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing, surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. This morning I want to talk about that. The surpassing value of knowing Christ. And we want to talk about that by asking some questions. Number one, what does scripture mean? When it speaks of knowing God. This morning as we were praying as elders. Gordon commented that the Lord had spoken to him. About uh, how we should not worry about talking about themes we've talked about before. And Gordon that sure fit. Because this is a theme I personally have talked about before. And others have talked about before. From the pulpit. And yes this is the word that God still has put upon my heart. For the morning. There are two ideas present in the expression knowing God. And there are two Greek words that relate to these two ideas. And the first idea is the identity of God. Who is God? And the Greek word oida is the word that is used to know, referencing knowing who God is. Oida is a word that tends to be used uh, referring to knowledge about something, knowing how to do something, or knowing the identity of something. And that word is used in Scripture with reference to knowing God. An example is 2 Timothy 1.12. Paul said, For this reason I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know, oida, I know whom I have believed. I know his identity. I know who he is, and I also am convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. Oida, I know him. I know who he is. Also used in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, 2 Timothy 3, 14, 15, and so on. When Paul came to Athens, he walked about the streets and he saw many, many temples. And later as he was speaking to the philosophers at the Areopagus, he said this, For a while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship. I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. In other words, he was saying, let me explain to you the identity of God, oida, his identity, who he is. This term refers to conceptual knowledge, and there's only one place we can get that knowledge, and that's from the Bible. Every culture, every culture, every race, every tribe has looked at the world in which we live, the clouds, the stars, the sun, the moon, the weather, the trees, the animals, 
And all of these have a sense there is some kind of a creator behind it all. And inductively, they therefore have deduced certain things about this creator. And so some worship the sun, and some the stars, and some a tree, and some Native Americans a wolf. Inductively deducing who and what is God. But the only place we can get objective knowledge is the Word of God. Over the years, as I often traveled and was away from Barbara for periods of time, I always wrote her love letters, some of them very intimate. But in our 59 years of marriage, the romance, in my heart at least, never went away. And she kept all of those love letters in a packet with a garter around them, and she kept them in a chest. Some weeks, perhaps months, I don't remember exactly, as we were discussing the future, both of us getting old, we know death sooner or later would come. And she said, there's one thing I'm concerned about dying, those love letters. They're mine, precious to me. No one else should ever read them. After she died, I took those love letters and burned them. This past week, I became curious about what does it really cost to buy a first edition book? <laughs> and so I went online to a particular company. That's all they do. They deal in first edition books. And I was surprised. Here are some for a few hundred dollars, some for a few thousand I was amazed to find a copy of F. Scott Fitzgerald's Tender is the Night, a 1934 one you probably read in, in your literature studies in school, $15,000. $15,000 for a book that thick. Regardless of how precious love letters might be to their recipient, Regardless of how expensive some first edition of a classic volume might be, these documents and every other document known to humanity fade in value when they're compared with the 66 documents between the covers of our Holy Bible. How do I know that the true God is not the Allah of the Koran. I read the Koran and I read the Bible. <laughs> oh my. How do I know the true God is not the Zeus of the Greeks or the Jupiter of the Romans? I read their mythology, bizarre stuff. Who could believe that? But then I read the Bible. And there's the true God. Inductive reasoning has not produced true knowledge of God, but Scripture has. There I learn His character, I learn His purposes, I learn His will, I learn how to approach Him in a manner in which He will respond. That's only one place in the Bible.
How do I know the Godhead is a trinity? <laughs> In the Bible. <laughs> Jesus said, I will pray to the Father and he will send you another comforter and when he, the spirit of truth, comes and so on and so on. I don't know, frankly, why the Trinity is so hard to understand. There are three persons with the same essence. Spencer Travis and Bill Sull and I are separate persons, but we have the same essence. We're human. <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, separate beings, same essence. How do I know the certain will of God, the certain will? only in the Bible. Now the other Greek term that refers to knowing God, the noun is gnosis, the Greek, or rather the verb is gnosko. And that means to learn from experience. I can have oidot knowledge of George Washington. I can read about him. I can read his life. I can read his biography. I can read history books about him. I can even read the legends about such things as cutting down a cherry tree and not lying. I can know about him, but I can never know George Washington, at least in this life. We've never had a conversation. We've never sat together. I have no idea what his voice sounded like. I don't know George Washington in a Gnosko sense. I do know him in an Oida sense. I know facts about him, his character. But I don't really know him personally. In Genesis 4.1 in the Greek version of the New Testament, the Septuagint, where it speaks of Adam and Eve copulating, it says Adam knew his wife. And that's the way the King James translates it. I'm sure he knew who Eve was. He knew where she came from, but it means he knew her sexually. He had experienced her in that way. That's gnosis or gnosko in the verb form. And when we read passages such as we noticed in Philippians a moment ago, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. That is the gnosis, the gnosko, experiential knowledge, living with him. It's not beautiful to think that that's even possible, that we can have that kind of relationship with the God of the universe. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, and that's the word gnosko, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What a marvelous possibility. <laughs> so we ask, what does the Bible mean when it says to know God? It means two different things. To know his identity, to know who the true God is, and secondly, to know him in a living relationship. Well, how do you get to know God? Well, we've already partially answered that from Hoida knowledge, read the Bible. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. But there's another part of that answer too. And that is by observing the world in which we live. 
Paul wrote to the Romans in 1, 19 and 20, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. Isn't it wonderful how the science of chemistry and physics and biology and astronomy, how these sciences are, are really exploding in our day. Because the more we learn about God's creation, the more magnificent we see he truly is. What a God that could make every snowflake different. <laughs> Think of that. The years mentioned before, the years that my dear wife struggled with chronic ulcerative colitis, I spent a lot of time studying the entire digestive tract from mouth to the other end. It's astounding how that works. You tell me that happened by chance. You remember when the German general sent word to General McAuliffe in the Battle of the Bulge and said, you're surrounded, we're going to annihilate you, so surrender. And McAuliffe sent back his reply, one word, nuts. I have one word for those who say the human digestive tract happened by chance, baloney. <laughs> it just couldn't. Be. What amazing things. Not only do we see God, the person of God, his character revealed in the Bible, but in the marvels of his creation. But what about Gnosis knowledge? How do we get that? Let me say this it's dangerous for me to say it. <laughs> But Bible reading and Bible study, if approached with the wrong mindset, can become a hindrance to gaining Gnosis knowledge. And I know that because I come from a background in which that was the case. The only way to hear from God, the only way to have any relationship with God, was through this book. As a matter of fact, we were used to saying in revival meetings, you know, he lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. And then they, the you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. But we can't do that, no. You ask me how I know he lives. The Bible tells me so. They actually changed the song. <laughs> because we can only know him through the Bible. His indwelling presence, a living relationship. These were never spoken of nor even acknowledged. And you know, it's so possible, it's possible to become so obsessed with the book that we don't have an obsession with the author of the book. 
When I am doing Bible study, I, I almost never read a commentary, but when I'm conjugating Greek verbs and declining nouns and pronouns and studying syntax to see what the author was really emphasizing, all that's good. But there comes a time to put that away. There comes a time for me to take out an English version of the Bible and with fellowship of the Holy Spirit to read the word and see what God is saying to me. Bible study is extremely important, but so is devotional reading in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. All scripture is inspired by God, yes. He's the author. And then there comes a time beyond that when I need to close the book and pray. And I must say for me personally because I've been walking with Christ now for 74 years and have spent much of my life in study of Scripture. Increasingly today, God has had me close the book more and more and pray more and more. I can't say that's true for everyone, but for me, that's where I am. There's a need to spend time in listening prayer. Sometimes the only kind of prayer folks ever do is talking. Oh, God, do this. Oh, God, do that. Oh, God, heal this person. Oh, God, give me this. Oh, I want to blah, blah, blah. You know, nothing wrong with that. Make your request known unto God with thanksgiving. So don't be shy about it. But there's a time to shut up and listen. In the years when I was involved in psychiatric study group, we did a lot of reading I remember reading a book by one particular psychiatrist who was a devoted believer. And he talked about his early morning prayer. And he said, in my early morning prayers, I'm praying. I kept being bothered by these wandering thoughts that would come to my mind. I couldn't get them out of my mind. And then one day I realized that was God talking to me. <laughs> He was causing me to think about this patient and that patient. And I came to realize the Lord was giving me direction for how I was to conduct therapy that day. Insights. And he said it transformed his psychiatric profession. Now there's frankly sometimes when we are sitting in the dark in silence before God, our thoughts tend, you know, my desk has a loud voice. It, it's always shouting, come here, come here. <laughs> but there's also, I've learned to not always resist those wandering thoughts because that's God's response when I'm listening. And that's a beautiful thing. How does knowing God manifest itself in one's life beyond the time of prayer and Bible reading. Philippians 2.1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit. And 2 Corinthians 13.14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, love of God and 
the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. By the way, notice that last verse contains the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What a wonderful truth we find in Romans 8, 1 to 11. You know it well about those who are led of the Spirit and so on and so on. How does that play out? What does it look like? First, let me say, every time in the New Testament you read about the filling of the Spirit, it is always spoken of as an ongoing activity. Anyone who is Spirit-filled doesn't walk around with a reservoir of the Holy Spirit, but you are receiving constantly that flow. If I have a flashlight, I have a battery in it, and I turn it on, and it shines because the power is in it. But to really light the room, I want to turn on a lamp, and I can put in the best bulb and the best switch, and nothing works until I plug it into the power. And in the New Testament, every time you read of the filling of the Holy Spirit, it is never a reservoir but it is a fountain. The Holy Spirit is flowing into our life. That's why in Ephesians 5.18 it says, Keep on being filled with the Spirit. And then don't quench the Spirit. Let that flow continue in your life. And John, it says, the, God does not give the Holy Spirit by measure. He doesn't uh, give you a gallon and you carry it around the rest of your life. We have to stay plugged in. And Jesus said... One day in John 7, as quoted, out of their belly will flow rivers of living water. And this spake he of the Holy Spirit that would be given to those who believe on him after he had been glorified. And he is now glorified. You see the pattern? The Holy Spirit flows into us and out of us. What a blessing! <laughs> To be the conduit of the Holy Spirit that touches every room we walk into, even when we're not aware of it. And it works in wonderful ways. Every time I go to Walmart, as I leave my car, I start praying. Lord, I ask you that today... You will let me, that you through me will touch a life while I'm in that store. Going to Walmart for me is a prayer meeting. <laughs> I walk through that store. I see a mother with little children. Obviously, they're having a hard time. Oh, God bless them. I see a crippled person. Oh, God bless them. And almost invariably, sooner or later, I find myself in a brief conversation with someone sharing the person of God. Now, I whistle. I've whistled all my life, and I whistle when I'm not aware of it. It's just something I do. I was in Walmart a while back. I think I was looking at paper towels or toilet paper, something there on that aisle. And suddenly I heard a voice say, that's beautiful, that must be a Christian song. I looked down and here was a lady in one of those mobile carts. 
What is that? I had to stop and think because I whistled unconsciously. And I realized I was whistling Vince Gill's song, Go High on the Mountain. Now, when Vince Gill's brother died, his brother had a horrible life, and he wrote this song, Go Rest High on the Mountain. I realized that's what I was whistling. <laughs> so I told her that, and then I began to talk about her. She was a Lutheran. She had a lot of problems in life, a lot of struggles, physical problems. So I was able to speak with her about Christ and his presence. Beautiful. I didn't plan that. Another instant of whistling. A few weeks ago, I was in Subway. Maybe last week, I'm not sure. Waiting in line, whistling, but unaware of it. And suddenly, a voice behind me said, That's beautiful. What is that song? I thought, I don't know. What was I whistling? And I said, Let me try this. No, that's not it. <laughs> and I whistled another one. No, that's not it. Now, he was working for Sonic and having a real hard time in life. Obviously, a man who never thought about God. That started to come out as we talked. And I was able to speak to him about the presence of God. And as I was leaving, he was giving his order, but I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, Young man, may God bless you today. Perhaps he's one who never thinks of God, but that night he did. I was at Jen Scripps Pharmacy two or three weeks ago. I gave the prescription. I was picking up something for Jimmy. Then I went around front and sat down. And after that, a middle-aged lady approached the counter, fairly well-dressed, handed the clerk, Stephanie, her credit card, Two times, three times, it's rejected. They won't take it. She came over and sat down next to me, and I tell she was really bewildered. And I thought, well, I'll just go tell the pharmacist, here's my credit card. I'll pay for it. But she began to talk to me at that moment, and she said, my daughter's a nurse in Canada. I don't know what to do. And then she called her daughter on the cell phone and then took the cell phone and handed Stephanie and Stephanie talked to her and I guess she gave her credit card numbers or something. Stephanie said, it's okay now. So we both sat there waiting and I saw she was troubled and I began to speak with her. And again, she talked to me about her life. You've heard me say this to you before, but I said it to her, you know, I've found that life is such that disaster is always waiting. And life is like walking across a pond that has a very thin sheet of ice. And if God's hand were not beneath that ice, I would fall through. But his hand has always been there. And we talk further. And when she got up to leave, she looked at me and said, huh, I can't say it exactly. I believe God cares about me enough to have sent you to me today as an angel to encourage me. Oh, what that did to my heart. That's what for me at least, 
living in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Living with gnosko knowledge of God is really like. And here's something totally different. You know, I, I work on a lot of stuff. I like to fix things. I kind of like for stuff to get broken because <laughs> I just like to fix things. Electricity, plumbing, used to be automobiles, but now because smart alecks have put so much electronics on them, I've lost. Sometimes I'm working, matter of fact, I like working on something I've never seen before and figuring it out. It's astounding how many times I've looked at something or there's been a problem and instead of going through some extensive diagnosis, the Holy Spirit has said, look here. <laughs> and I look there and there's the solution. Not every time, <laughs> but so often that has happened. And you know, when I'm working with his hands, with my hands, I have to say there's always that sense of its presence. Now, please understand today, I don't want you to look at me and say, he's what we should all be. It makes me... It makes hard for me sometimes to give testimony because how does one do it without calling attention to himself? And yet I feel that's what God has had me do today, to give testimony. Now, I've never made New Year's resolutions. I don't ever care to. Maybe you do. But if I were going to make a New Year's resolution, I can't think of a better one than this. Determine to learn all about God that you can through the study of his word and the observation of nature. And then through prayer and meditation and believing that he is with you, gain experiential knowledge of God. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Praise be his name.